The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, in the 1830s, there was an estimated 3 million Jews living around the world. In the 100 years after that, that number more than quadrupled, there were a half million Jews living in Germany a hundred years later. The, the Hebrew people had contributed in many positive ways to Germany the first part of the 20th century. Albert Einstein was one of a number of Jewish German scientists, and I was reading this week after World War I even, there were five different Jewish people living in Germany who won the Nobel Prize. In World War I, 100,000 Jews fought for their country, Germany, many of them on the front lines. 12,000 of those Jewish soldiers gave up their lives in fighting for their country. Another 30,000 Jewish soldiers were decorated for how they had fought for Germany. In the 1930s, Jews in Germany multiplied by over 300,000 more. But as you know, history, a new Fuhrer arose who did not know in the sense of he refused to acknowledge the, the positive good that the Hebrew people had brought to his country. This new ruler acted like he didn't know the descendants of Israel blessing his country and its history. And so a hundred years ago this summer, 1922, the summer of 1922, Hitler said, the Jewish people stands against us as our deadly foe and will so stand against us always. Germany's World War I defeat was now being blamed on disloyal traitors, especially the Jewish people. And as World War II seemed on the horizon, the growth of the the Hebrews was seen as a, a threat to him, and he wanted to convince his country they were a threat, and so there was a massive propaganda campaign about them being the enemies of of Germany, them being backstabbers and betrayers, and it was a very successful propaganda campaign. There was a very shrewd plan of racist, nationalist, anti-Semitic rhetoric where the children of Abraham were beginning to be oppressed politically first and then physically, and they were going to be separated into ghettos, and they were to be made to work in slave labor camps. And doctors tried to sterilize them to keep them from having babies because the the birth rate of them was continuing to grow. And at first, the plans to kill them were only known to government officials behind closed doors. But as the Third Reich wanted to deal shrewdly, they, they began with secret executions, starting with the males first. But as people hid the Jews, and as some within resisted, the Nazis met for the final solution, their Holocaust plan. And they brought in the wisest and finest they could. They brought in eight different leaders with PhDs. Goebbels, one of their propaganda masterminds, had three PhDs. And the concentration camps 
became death camps. In fact, I was reading this week of an Auschwitz survivor who told of a German officer ripping a baby from the arms of its mother and then throwing it to its death as the mother fainted. These were some of the horrors. But there were heroes as well. There were heroines as well. There were mothers and daughters who tricked the Gestapo, who sabotaged their government, who, who put their own lives on the line to save the lives of others. You've heard of Corey Ten Boom, at least many of you have, and their hiding place that saved many. Maybe you've heard of Anne Frank's diary as well, but many of the names are, are not known to us. In fact, an interesting story that my wife has read, there's, there were actually women in concentration camps, I didn't know this, who secretly had babies and amazingly hid them and raised them, and those kids survived. And you know what book we are in in the Bible, the book of Exodus, even as I, I read those things, is, is an eerily similar story on many levels. And we're going to meet a secret baby from a labor camp and an amazing story that we're going to see today. But in many ways, the ancient Egypt that we're learning about, you might call it the first Reich. The original Fuhrer, Pharaoh, is in power in Exodus. If you would turn to Exodus 1, Israel was multiplying and they were growing at a rapid rate. In fact, if you look at the numbers in Exodus Some people estimate there might have been around 3 million Jews in the time of the Exodus with 600,000 men and doing the math with that. And more than Einstein, the the genius of of Joseph had blessed Israel greatly. But Exodus 1 verse 8 says there there arose another, a, a new Pharaoh who didn't know. And I think it's in the sense of like the Fuhrer, he refused to acknowledge. He refused to care for Joseph's descendants. He refused to consider the good that they had done. And in verse 9, he basically says, these Jews are overrunning the place. They're going to overtake our motherland. So verse 10 was the propaganda. We need to be shrewd. We need to be wise in this. War is coming, and our enemy is these traitor Jews. Their ghetto would be Goshen. Their whole land would become slave labor camps in verses 11 through 14. And efforts to kill them began secretly with the males, as we're going to see in the medical profession, but there were resistors and there were rescuers. And and as you read the story, we're not just to think this is deja vu. We need to to think this is the devil again at work, trying to stop the plan of Genesis 3.15, of this one who would be born, the seed of a woman who would defeat the devil He knows that plan. But let's read Exodus 1, verse 15. And we need to understand behind this, there are powers of darkness as well. But the king of Egypt, Exodus 1, 15, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. And just pause there for a moment. Maybe what's going on here is the, the person's giving birth. They can't see what's going on. And his first step of the plan is maybe, maybe you're there. Maybe you can you know, secretly suffocate in some way that, that child as if he died at birth, which, which there was an infant mortality rate. That, that wasn't uncommon. 
But he says, if it is a daughter, she shall live. But whatever the exact means he wanted them to kill them, verse 17 says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are are not like the Egyptian women. For they, the, the Hebrew women, are, are vigorous, or they're, they're, they're lively, they're, they're strong, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwife, midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Maybe you're wondering, why just sons? Well, the reason Pharaoh gives is he's concerned about war to come, but it also might be he wanted the women so that they could intermarry, and and ultimately, if, if all the males were gone, they would become assimilated into Egyptian society, as typically the, they would take the identity through the husband in those days. But we need to understand the serpent from Genesis also knows behind this. A male seed of the woman has been promised who will crush his head, and so we need to understand this is ultimately satanic behind all this. And what this leader does is it moves beyond the medical profession. It moves beyond closed doors to now a government command for any faithful, loyal Egyptian. If you know of any Hebrews, any Jews who are hiding, any little ones, you need to come and tell us if you're faithful to us. It's like, it's like the original Gestapo, and, and they're literally, you can imagine them tearing Babies from the arms of mothers. Nothing more horrible to think about than that. And to throw them to their death in the Nile. This is his final solution to the Jewish problems in Egypt. It's the original murder on the Nile. Call the midwife. But these midwives sabotage his plan. They fearlessly resist. They trick his SS. They risked their lives. And so we heard Pharaoh's word. But God is going to have the last word in the story. And he's going to do it through the way that only God can. And only God could write a story like this. He's going to do it through daughters and moms. They're going to be the, the heroes, the heroines of this story. They're going to save the day. And this is all part of his plan to save the world Later, And so ultimately, this story is going to show us Christ, which is the, you might say, the theme of this book. This is pointing us forward to Christ to come. But let's keep reading. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And by the way, that language that's used of the woman conceiving and bore a son is, is used only on certain special occasions. When something special is about to happen through the, the book of Genesis, there's a hint that something special again. God is at work in unfolding his plan of a male child. 
And when she saw, verse 2, middle of verse 2, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she, bit, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister, this is the sister of this baby boy, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. So this is a dramatic moment now. She takes, her servant comes, this is, remember, the daughter of the king who's made that order. She sees the baby, she beholds the baby who was crying, and she sees it's one of the Hebrews' children. And look what it says, she took pity on him. She knows this is one of those children marked by her father for destruction. Verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. That's an affirmative, yes. The, the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. What are we to draw out of this familiar story? We, we've seen God's providence already in this book. We've seen God's unstoppable promises in this book. I want us to see here, first of all, the irony. And then we're going to see God's mercy. And then... We're going to see God's glory, and we should sing God's glory. But first of all, this is the, the first point I want us to see. Number one, the irony and futility of sin. See the irony and futility of sin. The, the sin that is going on here, the sin of hate, is that sin that ironically poisons the very person who is, who is filled with it. You, you've heard bitterness is, is like a poison that, that, that you keep drinking, hoping it's going to hurt the other person and it's destroying you. This is what hate does. Ayan Hersi Ali grew up, taught practically on a daily basis that Jews were evil, the sworn enemies of Muslims whose only goal was to destroy Islam. This is what she heard growing up in in the Arabia, Arabian countries and African countries. She grew up hearing the Jews blamed for everything, to war. If, quote, if we ever wanted to know peace and stability, she was taught, we would have to destroy them before they would wipe us out. And the author of this article says, it is a phenomenon as old as the pharaohs and as contemporary as Al-Qaeda. We could also talk about 20th century in our land, population control, eugenics, of Margaret Sanger. It's a horrifying to think of 20 million plus African Americans who have been aborted in this country. And when you read about the Negro Project and, and those things early in our country's 
history. But here's the irony. Every abortionist will face the creator of life. And every Nazi knee will bow before the Lord. Every terrorist tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's an irony. Adolf Hitler, the Jew, when he died, now is in the presence of the Jew, Jesus, as his eternal judge. And this pharaoh, this pharaoh in this story is now bowing before the king of the Jews. Those Jews that he wanted to get rid of, he cannot get rid of the king of the Jews. On their face, all will fall and, and hail the power of Jesus' name. Even, even fallen angels will prostrate fall on judgment day. But even in this life, this story wants to show us that resistance is futile. That there's a irony and a futility of of sin. And so some of the ironies in chapter 1, verse 10, there's this nameless man who says, let's be shrewd with the Jews. Let's be wise. And all we can see from him is futility and, and folly. In fact, he's not even named. The only one named in what we just read is Shipra and Pua. Pharaoh is, is not a name, just so you know. It's, it's a title for the king of Egypt, or like president would be a, a title, not their name. We don't get his name here. These ladies are the only ones named in this narrative until chapter 2, verse 10. What God is saying is, this is what matters in the story. You know who matters in the story? It is Shipra and Pua. Not that man on the throne and In this passage, God is going to use unlikely and unsung heroines. These women who don't fear this evil man. Look at chapter 1, verse 17 again. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And when you know something about history, you've got to understand in doing this, They are putting their own lives on the line as well. You didn't defy a pharaoh. But that's what they did because they cared more about what God thought and what God might do than what any tyrant might do. And so verse 18, the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are are not like the Egyptian women. Women, And this is also kind of risky to say, because basically they're saying they're, they're not weak like your women are. You know, your women, they can't really seem like do anything when they're giving birth. They've got to wait for the midwife to come. But these, these, these Hebrew women, they're strong, man. They're popping them out all over the place. And it's just, they're, they're giving birth before we can even, before we even get there. Now, it is possible that that's true. God's been talking about how he made them strong and he's multiplying them. And he may very well have made the babies come intentionally before these two midwives could. There were, and there were a lot of them all over the place. Or it may be that these midwives actually set it up to be that way. Say, we're, we're not actually going to come into the, the room, but we'll, we'll, we'll tell you how to do this so that you can actually... Have them give birth before we come on the scene as the labor and delivery directors. Or it may not have been true. And that begs the other question. Does a madman about to murder deserve all of the information? 
It doesn't say, the text doesn't say if it was partial truth or untrue, but what is clear in the text is Pharaoh is fooled. And he's too foolish to even know it. He's ignorant. He doesn't really understand these things. But he, he seems satisfied with that. He's got to try a different plan. There's no, he doesn't bring consequences on these women. They actually get blessed in the process. Verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. You get the idea that these midwives didn't have families of their own up until this point. They, they loved children, and so they served in that way. But, but now, these very ones he told to end families, they end up getting families of their own in the end. Instead of murdering babies, they are multiplying babies. And so these... These two names, Shipra and Pua, these aren't household names for us. These aren't ones that we think of as heroes of the faith, but this is who Moses, as he's writing this, wants you to think of. These are heroes of the faith, and they get households as they honor the Lord's names. And the language here isn't just for Old Testament times. We read in the New Testament these words, the churches walking in the fear of the Lord were multiplied. They grew. They were multiplied. It says they were fruitful. And it says the number of the disciples exceedingly increased. Because Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is part of that plan from Genesis 3.15. For his people, here's how Charles Spurgeon applied it. The early persecutions in Judea promoted the spread of the gospel. The church probably never increased at a greater ratio than is when her foes were most fierce to assail and most resolute to destroy her. The Reformation never went on so prosperously as when it was most vigorously opposed. And so he says, be patient then, my brethren. Amidst the persecutions or trials, you may be called upon to bear and be thankful that they are so often overruled. For the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel, and the honor of Christ. Because where pressure and where persecution comes, that's where the church grows the most. It's been that way for thousands of years. But again, consider the ironies here. Pharaoh, in what he says and what he does, is not worried about females as any threat to his plan. Let the daughters live. But isn't it ironic It's all daughters who overthrow his plan here. This king who thinks he's so wise, it seems like he's fooled by these two midwives, and in the process they are insulting his racial superiority, saying those Egyptian women are are pansies, the the Hebrew women are strong. And then there's this daughter in the tribe of of, of Levi who, who manages to hide her baby boy for three months. And then it's her daughter, this little girl, is going to have a big role in this story. And then two more women are going to defy the king. There's going to be a servant girl from the palace, and then his own daughter is going to join the resistance and be the crucial player in what would lead to the overflow, overthrow of the kingdom. And so all this, all this time, he's raising the ante against Israel. She is going to be raising this adoptee who is later going to deliver Israel. You see, this isn't just ironic, this is comedic. Pharaoh is not just foolish, he is, he is loony too. So, well, someone said it, it's like Wiley Coyote. He keeps trying all these different things to stop the roadrunner, and everything he tries is blowing up in his face. All his tactics are destroying himself, and it's like at the end of each one of them, there's this little beep-beep right next to him, because he's, he just keeps losing. 
He keeps losing. Everything is acne that he tries, if you will. And the joke is on, on him because he cannot get his own government employees, these midwives, or even his own girl to obey him. This is not a mighty man. Psalm 2 says, when sinful rulers conspire together and say, come let us, very same words Pharaoh uses here, when they do that, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs when man thinks they can stop him. God loves to make foolish the wisdom of this world and to destroy those who think they are wise. It's a great lesson for us. God delights to shame the wise by how he chooses and uses those who would be considered weak. That's 1 Corinthians 1, which is good news for us because we don't feel like we're mighty. We feel like we're, we're weak. But we don't want to be, the, the, the takeaway is we don't want to be like those in Romans 1 and here in Exodus 1 who became futile in their thinking. And it says, professing to be wise, they became fools. That's what Paul describes. That's been going on throughout human history. Exodus 1 is telling us, forget about King What's-His-Face. If you want to know who to, to follow in this story, think of these faithful women and follow them. Which I think shows us, again, this is not a book of ancient man. This is not a book that, like, like the books at all that they would write in those days. This is radically different than any books written of the history of man. This is a patriarch writer, Moses, who's lifting up the women as heroes, which is what a true biblical leader does when that's the truth. But this is not just what Moses is writing. Only God can write a story like this. And just think of some of the ironies again. The villain of this story, this true story, is calling for the boys to be put in the river. And so this boy actually gets put in the river by this heroic mom. And, and this is actually going to be the very, the very victory that comes against Pharaoh's plan. Pharaoh thinks, you know, if I can drown a potential future army of, of Israel in the water, then I'll be okay. And he's going to reap what he sows because his own future army is going to drown in the water, the water of the Red Sea. And actually, the, the language for the reeds here is, is used of the Red Sea later, the Yom Suf, the Red Sea. There, there's just connections all over the place. And, and the, I think Moses is smiling as he's, he's writing these, because the king commands, throw the boys in the water. And, and, and just a few chapters later, all of the king's men are going to be thrown into the water of the sea. It's like, like in Esther, right? You remember Haman, he's got this plan to, to put down the Jews, and it's Haman who ends up having to lead this parade, lifting up Mordecai, the Jew that he hated more than anyone else. And Haman builds these gallows to hang and to annihilate the Jewish people, and Haman and those with him, they all get hung on their own gallows. Or we can think about this pattern in Babylon, those, those men who come against Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, other faithful people who, who said, we will obey God rather than you, whatever the consequences. They have this lion's den and this fiery furnace, and those become the places where God's people are protected, and those very people coming against them die in the lion's den and die in the fiery furnace. And even the blood of martyrs as we've seen in church history, becomes the seed of the church. 
And so take heart, friends, that, that Jesus is at work building his church, and there's nothing that can prevail against it. Acts 4.25, peoples devise futile things to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined. God has this in his hand. And when you see something on the news, boy, if that happens, that's going to be the end of everything in Christianity. That's not how it works. The more pressure that comes, the more we know God is at work. And I think sometimes we maybe need to turn off the news feed and spend a little more time reading this book and read this story of Exodus. If you haven't read it already as we've begun this series, read through the book of Exodus, or at least read through the first half of it or the first part of it or through chapter 15 if you can before next week because you'll be encouraged as you see what's happening here and then the ultimate plan of God later that they couldn't see yet but also as as we think about the irony and futility of of sin we need to remember and I think one of the the messages as Moses is writing this to Jews going into the promised land is, is we need to not resist God we need to not harden our heart resistance is futile with God and I would say to you if you have secret sin going on in in your life that you think you can continue to to cherish. You can't. You're not going to prevail. That is a futile effort. You need to confess that sin. You need to seek help for that sin from God's people. Confess your foolish sin. Don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind, Paul says. But also be encouraged. As you see the futility rise, and you can see it pretty much any time you turn on the news or, or open your browser, there's futility. You're going to see more and more futility and foolishness that people think is actually wise. But be encouraged to know that the heart of a king is in the hand of the Lord, and he it's like channels of water that he can turn whichever way he wills. That's what Proverbs says. Even the most mighty supposedly men on earth, their, their heart is... It's just like, like water in your hand that you can easily turn one way or another. And what we're going to see with this king here, and Egypt was the most powerful empire on earth. You would say he was the most powerful man on earth. God's going to turn things. And even the, the, the language of channels of water is how, in Exodus 2, he's going to direct his plan. And he's going to direct his plan to the daughter of the king. <laughs> this is no coincidence. You know, we talk about things being accidents. This is, but we understand, of course, this is God's providence. And so look at our second point now. See God's mercy in these women. See God's mercy, number two, in these women. Exodus 2, verse 2 is our second point now. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and, and daubed it with Bidumen and pitch, not even sure how to pronounce some of those words, but she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and her sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And he's not giving us the names here right now. He's going to later for these women tell, tell Mrs. Jochebed is the mother, Miriam is the sister, but I think right now he wants the drama to be focusing on these, these women, and there's going to be two more that come into the scene. What's going to happen? But Miriam right now, if you take some other passages, she's probably between 6 and 12 years old. Just imagine that. R- raise your hand if you're between 6 and 12 years old here. Raise your hand if you're between 6 and 12. All right, we've got a bunch of you here. Think about, think about 6 and 12-year-olds as you read what's going to happen 
Because God's going to mercifully use this little kid. And God can use you who are little as well. The Bible is not just a book for grown-ups. And it's not just about grown-ups. The Lord loves the little children. And he loves to use them to make lessons for us who are older and to be examples. And, and they matter in his kingdom. That's what Jesus said. And this little one is going to play a big role in the plan of a very big God. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Set an example, the Bible says, for those who are older. And she's going to do that here. And in the Gospels, we see the Lord has a special care for little children. And in this text, there's something special that this mother sees in this little child. Now, I know a lot of you moms, when you held your baby in your hand, maybe your first one, you, you, you maybe thought this is the most beautiful, special child ever. And that's, that's right, but it seems that there's something even more than that going on here. And there's, there's something, verse 2 says, she saw that he was a fine child. Your Bible might say something else about his appearance. It, it's, it's the phrase, though, that Moses, when he's writing this, used seven times in Genesis 1. God created something, he made something, and then God saw that it was good. That's the same phrase here. Looking out on what he'd made, he saw that it was good. Seven times, everything that he made. And, and so we know Moses isn't good in the same sense as the original perfect creation before sin. Moses is a sinner. We're going to see that even in this chapter. But this mother's intuition, this mother's insight sees something extra special here, something beautiful from a merciful creator here and i think she sees even god's goodness and as as she looks at what he has made here and maybe through the spirit she is trusting that he's going to be at work again like he was back at the beginning like they hadn't seen god do mighty things in a long time but there's there seems to be some faith and some trust in in jacobed that God's going to be at work again like in the beginning, and, and we can confirm that from Hebrews 11.23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And so the inspired writer of Hebrews gives us some more commentary on, on what's going on here in in. This chapter here, just like chapter 1 of Exodus, there's a a fearless and a faith-motivated woman who's resisting this wicked man. And as she does, you can imagine the story. It's it's one thing to, you've heard the stories of people hiding adult Jews in Europe as the Gestapo were were coming by. It's another thing, though, to keep a three-month-old baby quiet and so exodus 2 3 says the day came when she couldn't hide him any longer and what what that may mean as you can imagine a a two-month-old can be pretty noisy too but it may not be able to hide him any longer may mean the secret police are now ramping up their secret raids on homes for secret baby boys there's a desperate turn of events, whatever exactly it was. There's a desperate measure here now. And that desperate measure is a floating bassinet. So that you can imagine her thought process, if I put him there, 
when the Egyptian SS comes by and says, do you have a baby boy here? She, she could say, there's no baby boys here. Someone said you had one. Yeah, I put my, I put my boy in the river. Maybe technically true, but also tricking murderous madmen, hoping to get her baby back. And even as we think about some of these details here, it's, it's one thing to debate ethics in an air-conditioned classroom. It's another thing to be in these difficult situations. But even to know and to, to not judge them by our standards or to figure out how could a mother do, do this when you're not in that situation... But to, to know also that, that even as they're, they're rewarded for their faith, and even if there might be something imperfect or not that we're exactly to do in all situations, the Lord uses and works through imperfect people when their heart is to honor him. And that's definitely what we see here. They're honoring the Lord. And we see his merciful, providential hand at work in the midst of evil tyranny. And there's going to be more difficult choices arising for us some of you have or will be facing difficult choices regarding your employment and, and various things that, where they might more and more want you to get along with an agenda that goes against your, your conscience. You've got to wrestle through those things. We've got to get help of each other and godly believers and, and from the church. There's things about the future we don't know, but we know that God has the future in control. And we know if we're living by faith and not fearing man, we can pray that he will be merciful like he was here. And I know as parents, sometimes you fear this evil world, or as you think of your grandchildren, this evil world, and you don't, you just think about your kids being sent out into this world. We need to see the God of Exodus. We need to trust him. We need to do what we can. But then there comes a day where we need to cast them out on God's mercy. And that day may come where they're not in our home anymore, but we trust that He's going to guide them to others who He will use in His plan, who can help them even if they're not having that same relationship with us anymore. We need to help each other be strong, not to fear government edicts that will more and more come against the things we hold dear. Jacobet is a great example of living by faith. And she also joins heroic birth moms who, who were in difficult situations and, and had to make decisions to, to give their child to another who could raise them. And, and those women are heroes. And there's a number in this room that that's part of the story and we honor that. But also there's more to this story here. The Jews knew their history Jochebed would have grown up hearing the story about the great flood where so many died. And yet there was this wooden boat that was made and it was, it was sealed with pitch. And Noah and his family were put in this while, while so many around them were, were dying. They were preserved through this as the waters were killing others. And, and there, there may be a hope that she's thinking about this, sealing this wooden boat with pitch, thinking about that story. And, and there's a direct link in the language because Genesis 6 through 9 is the only other place that this word is used. It's the word ark. All over the, the rest of the Old Testament, there's different words for like the ark of the covenant. There's different words for boats. What, what the text says is that this mother made a little ark. 
She sealed it with pitch. And, and, and this is obviously much smaller, but the word is connecting the story. God's going to deliver. And it, Hebrews says she was doing this by faith, believing that God can, can deliver this one from a watery death, just like, she did, like he did with Noah. And, and this one perhaps could be the deliverer of, of others as well. And, and these two, Noah and Moses, would both be saved so that they could save others. That They would both preach righteousness. But many would reject what they would preach and would be hardened against them. They would both receive a covenant. They would both receive covenant grace. They would both lead the people of God to a a new land and to a new start, to be a new people. They would both, Noah and Moses, receive detailed building projects and instructions about clean and unclean animals. But I'm getting ahead. Miriam in verse 4 doesn't know what's ahead. She doesn't know if this is a safe surrender site. There's no signs like at a gas station, or not a gas fire station, or a hospital. You know, this is where you can surrender your babies. There was no safe place to do that. This is more than an adventure in babysitting for Miriam. This is a serious thing. What's going to happen? Verse 5, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children, and, and we need to see this is, this is huge. This is God's mercy at work in her mercy, her pity, her compassion. This is the daughter of the Pharaoh. See God's compassion over against her father's command to kill. And see God's merciful provision, because this, this baby could have floated other places, or even just there in the reeds. It could have been some of Pharaoh's goons that would find this baby and would kill it. But it's found by this girl, who's the daughter of the Pharaoh, but has not inherited his hard heart. This is a dramatic scene, and, and there is an undaunted, brave little girl, little girl that's going to step into the scene and going to talk to the princess, verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, and I think she could tell, oh, she, she's, she has affection for this little one. She's not going to do anything to this little one. But she's apparently not a mom, not a nursing mom. There's, there's Hebrew women who their babies have been taken away from them, and, but they have, have milk. They could nurse. Wet nurses is what this is called. She says, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. Remember, Moses is writing this, and this is his mother, but he, I'm sure there's even an extra smile. Just thinking about the irony. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman, this Jochebed, took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Five times it repeats that this is Pharaoh's daughter. This is Pharaoh's daughter. Some think she's Hatshepsut, who later would become queen. But at this point, she's a princess. She's giving royal protection. And not only that, The payroll of the king is being given to this 
Jewish boy's birth mom. You can't make this up. The Egyptian government that tried to slay Hebrew boys is now going to pay for this Hebrew boy to be nursed by his own mom. I mean, do you, can you see this? And, and for the, what a sweet providence that for those first three or four years, which is probably the language of when they would wean them, at least something maybe even more, but definitely from those earliest years, he would get to bond with his birth mom. He would be taught by Jacobed. Corey read earlier, from the earliest, from your infancy, you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. That was Timothy's experience with his Hebrew mother. And that was undoubtedly Moses' experience from the earliest days, teaching him the stories until when Acts 7 says, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him as her own son. And it says, so Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He's given the finest education in how to, how to speak, in, in diplomacy, how to lead, and, and all these different things. <laughs> just, just again, imagine this. Imagine if Hitler's daughter adopted a Jew secretly. And he didn't know, but he, 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 he pays for the best schools in Germany to train this grandson. And it ends up that this grandson is the one who leads the way to defeat the axis of evil in World War II. I mean, that's, that's the irony and the mercy going on here. This Moses, which has something to do in their language of drawn out of water. That's his... Destiny going to be in a greater way. He's going to draw out the people of God through the water. And his staff is going to cast those parted waters down on those soldiers who cast babies into the waters. They're going to have the waters come down on them. We sang about freedom for the slave. That's coming in this story, but that takes us to our third and final point and application, and that is sing God's glory for salvation. Sing the glory of God for salvation because this is where Exodus is going. Just a few chapters forward, we're going to read Moses and the people of Israel sang, I will sing to the Lord. He has become my salvation. And, and it says Miriam is going to sing to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. There's going to be a lot of timbrels and dancing and a lot of exciting stuff. That's coming in Exodus 15, but also in Revelation 15. This is where history is going, to the end, where John sees God's people in heaven, and it says they are singing the song of Moses. And this is part of what they say as they sing, Who will not fear? Who will not glorify your name? All the nations will come and worship before you. The question is, will you, do you, are you a part of those who worship Him, who fear Him, who give glory to Him? If you're not one of those, if you don't, then repent. Trust Jesus to be your salvation. Fear God and glorify Him by faith in His Son. Worship Him. And if you have faith like Shipra and Pua, you can know that your names are written down in the book 
of the Lamb. Your names also, he says, of his people are graven on my hand. If you see him like Miriam did, you'll sing to him like she did too. Phil Riken's book, Saved for God's Glory, says, We are called to trust God the way a desperate mother once did when she put her heart in a basket and entrusted it to the God who saves. I love that word picture. She's, she's putting her heart in that basket, and she is trusting that there's a God who saves. And like Pharaoh's daughter, the sins of your past or family, or even great sin and great evil does not need to be your identity. It doesn't define you. It doesn't need to be your destiny. These women should encourage us. It's not mighty men who God chooses to use. It's ordinary people who God loves to use. In the first page of the New Testament, the gospel begins with another Joseph who was not known to his king. And there's another Miriam, the first page of Matthew's gospel. Miriam is just the Hebrew form of Mary, the Greek spelling. It was a crisis pregnancy for Mary. But as the baby comes, she, she sees, she sees a, a truly good and perfect child. And she puts him in a box of wood, doesn't she? And King Herod similarly felt threatened in his kingdom by these enemy Jews and by a a king, a ruler who might arise as a male seed of of the woman. And so he first tries to secretly deal with it through wise men, and then he openly orders all of the Jewish baby boys to be killed in Bethlehem. We read that earlier. And then Joseph is told by God to go to Egypt with his family to be saved. They were going to be there for some time, and then they were going to return from there. They were going to return from Egypt back into Israel to fulfill what had been said in the Old Testament, out of Egypt I called my son. We're going to see some of that son language called out of Egypt in Exodus 4. But like Moses, this boy in the New Testament would be delivered, and he would deliver many. Moses points us forward to him, but this book is going to show us Christ. What a story. What a Savior. Amen. Let's trust in Him. Our great God, we thank You for the greatness of Your Word. And I pray, Lord, that You would help us to live in light of these truths, that we would be encouraged by Your grace, by Your sovereignty, and by Your character of who You are. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.